And I'd invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 25. It's on page 1106. Acts chapter 25, page 1106. So we're continuing to look at the story of Paul, and in these last few chapters of Acts, he is a prisoner going to Rome. And you'd think he should be discouraged about that, but he, think, he thinks it's the greatest thing. He's preaching the gospel the whole way. Acts 25 and 26 today. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we again pray that as we open up the Word, as we open up the Bible, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, we're mindful of our brothers and sisters in Charleston this morning. We can't imagine what it must be like to gather for church after such a terrible massacre. And yet, Lord, we praise you for the gospel shining in Charleston. Lord, rather than riots and chaos, there's prayer, there's unity. Lord, people are praying. Lord, we pray that that we would not only pray for Charleston, but we would pray like Charleston, that we would be those kinds of Christians who, when that day comes of tragedy, that we would respond with grace, forgiveness, and prayer, Lord. So strengthen them today. And Lord, we pray for our own uh, family here. Again, we just want to lift up the Keith family, bless and encourage them on this Father's Day as they grieve the the passing of their father this week. And God, we pray for the Flanagan family, be with John and Debbie as they grieve the loss of their son, Jeff. Lord, just put your arms around them. Give them grace tomorrow at their funeral. Lord, we pray. Be with these families. Be with us all. Help us to laugh with those who laugh, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to mourn with those who mourn, to be a family of God that really cares for each other. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was in college, uh, I took an anthropology class, and uh, as part of that class, early on, the professor had us play a game in the class, and uh, in this game, he divided the room up into different groups or teams, and then he passed out uh, sort of like chips or points to the various groups, and uh, some groups had different amounts, and then he told us the rules of the game, and it was was sort of a chip-trading game, and and there were certain rules about when you gave chips and got chips. And so, so he explained that all to us. Um, and, and so anyway, I was really excited about this. I was like, this is my class. Uh, some of you know one of my hobbies is I'm a, I'm a big gamer. You know, one of, my, one of my dream ways to spend Father's Day would be to eat barbecue and then spend eight hours playing a strategy game. Like, that's a great Father's Day to me. So I heard this, and I was like, oh we got this. So I got my team together. I'm like, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And I you know, just started bossing everybody around. And the game started, and my team went out, and we like scored a bunch of chips. And then we came back, round two, we did it again. And we were smoking everybody. It was awesome. You know, we're getting the big pile of chips. It's, so it was great. Um, except there's one weird thing in the game. There's this one team that it's like they didn't care about the chips. They were, so, they were lame. And, and when you talk to them... But instead of just like making the trade so the game could keep going, when you talk to them, they, they, would, they would say things to you like, so where, you know, where are you from? And you'd be like, what? And you're like, where are you from? And I would say, well, I'm from Las Vegas, but let's trade. And they're like, yeah, but you know, what's your major? What dorm are you in? And they would chat us up and whatever. So I just give me the chips. And so anyway, the game was done. The chips were tallied. We, my team was like way in the lead, and we were happy, and the other teams were mad, and then that one, you know, that one weird team didn't really care. 
And then that's when the, the professor sort of sprung his trap on us, and he showed us that there was actually a game within the game. And he said, who won? And we're like, we did. He said, how do you know? We said, because we have the most chips. And he says, you know, I never, ever told you what the goal of the game was. We were told the rules of how you trade, but he actually never told us the objective. But we, as Americans, you know, brought, and this is the whole point of anthropology, to sort of become aware of your cultural lenses. We, we as Americans, instantly translated chips as money and amassing money, and that's the point of everything, right? So, so we just saw it that way. We interpreted it that way. He's like, there actually was no, I didn't give you victory conditions. I didn't give you what the point of the game was. You brought that yourselves. And we're all like, oh, you know, we're having this light bulb go off. Except for that one group. They figured it out. They knew that. And they're like, what are we doing this stupid game for? And so they decided that the point of their game for them was to meet everybody in the room. And they just made that their goal. And so they were like, well, we we accomplished our mission, which was to meet everybody in the room. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're taking the gospel seriously, and you really want to see the name of Jesus made more widely known and loved, and and if the gospel is what drives you, it, it will make you like that weird group in the game who's just doing things for different reasons than everyone else is doing. I mean, we're playing the same game. We go to work. We make money. We mow the lawn. We clean the bathroom in our apartment. We push the baby in the stroller. We watch the Patriots. I mean, we do the things that everybody else does, and we enjoy them. We're part of the game. We're transacting, but we we have totally different objectives in this. Because our hearts, big hearts concern, our victory conditions is not make the most money or, you know, get to vacation or watch my show or find Mr. and Mrs. Wright and have 2.5 kids or whatever. Like, even though those are good things and they're not bad, but as we live this life, we're not saying that's the, the victory conditions of the game. We have a different victory condition. For us, it's to glorify God and to let the light of Jesus shined to let the gospel message be proclaimed through our lives. For us, that's victory. It's when God is glorified and the gospel has gone out and we see the, the, the trading and the transacting as merely the platform to accomplish that, not to amass the most points. That's the only way I can make sense of the Apostle Paul in this story. As we look at Acts chapter 25 and 26, we're continuing to study the life of Paul. For those of you who are just here for the first time, maybe here on Father's Day with someone. Welcome. We're really glad that you guys are with us. Um, we, we're, we've been studying the book of Acts this year, which is the story of the early church after Jesus. This is the, the sort of the first years of the church as it was founded. And Paul is a key figure, has been spreading the gospel. And here, at, near the end of his life, he gets imprisoned for his faith. And now he's been in prison for two years. In fact, look at chapter 24, verse 27. This is from last week. When two years had passed, so Paul's been in prison for two years, Felix, who was the governor under whom Paul was imprisoned, was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. So we pick up our story. Paul's been in prison two years. He hasn't been granted justice. He hasn't been convicted of any crime. 
but, but Festus, as we, uh, or Felix rather, if you know from last week, was holding Paul in prison. Remember why? Because he wanted a bribe. <laughs> so he was a really corrupt governor. And actually, we know from ancient history that Felix was a very corrupt governor. He, he made a mess of his governorship. Well, he's succeeded by this guy named Festus. And we know from history that Festus was kind of a reformer. He was more of a straight arrow, do things by the book kind of guy. And so, so here's Festus, and he takes over. And look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 25. It says, three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea, that was the capital, up to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus, as a favor to them, to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. So, you know, here's Festus. He's just a straight arrow. He's following the the procedure. The procedure is you need to come. You need to bring charges. He's in Caesarea. How about you come with me? So verse 6, after spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Poor, poor Festus, his first week on the job. And this is the first big nut he has to crack. You know, he gets there on the job and he shows up in Jerusalem probably to meet all of his, his new subjects and they're like, hey, what about Paul? You know, they, they've been waiting two years for this. They've been sharpening their knives for two years. They're ready to, uh, to see Paul killed. And so Festus brings Paul up and they charge him with things. They can't prove it. They have no evidence. It's just accusations. Verse 8, Paul made his defense. He said, I've done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. He hadn't done anything wrong. He can't prove it. And he hadn't. We know that. So verse 9, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and to stand trial before me there on these charges? You know, they want you to go to Jerusalem. You want to go there? Probably at this point, Festus is a sharp guy, and he's figuring out that that the the debate they're having really isn't a law-breaking issue, but it's more like kind of their own intramural theological debate they're having. So he's like, well, maybe we should just go to Jerusalem and you guys can hash out your theology. We can do it there. But Paul answered, verse 10, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done anything wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And when Paul says those words, I appeal to Caesar, he has said the magic words. Because under Roman law, if you were a Roman citizen, which Paul was, this was a right that every Roman citizen had to have his case tried by Caesar. It was called the provocatio. It, it was a, a law or a right that Roman citizens, once charged with a crime, could, could go directly to Caesar, and they could have Caesar try their case. And so Paul pulls out his I'm a Roman citizen card, and he says the, the, this, uh, the accurate legal formula, I appeal to Caesar. So he says, I want to go to Rome and have, have Caesar hear my case. I don't want to go back to Jerusalem. I want to go to Rome. 
And so verse 12, after Festus had conferred with, conferred with his council, he declared, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. So Festus now has to honor Paul's right as a Roman citizen and send him to Rome to appeal to Caesar. There's just one weird thing about this, and it's this. Paul has not been formally charged with a crime. So normally when you pulled that Roman go to Caesar card out of your pocket, it was because you've been charged with a crime, you're standing before the judge, and for whatever reason you don't want that judge to render the verdict on your charges, so you appeal to Caesar and you can go straight there. And you know you might have to wait a couple of years to get an audience, but you had that right. But in this case, this is what's so weird. Paul pulls out his card, he hasn't actually been charged. There is no formal Roman charges against him. It's like, Paul, you're not playing by the rules of the game. What are you doing, Paul? This is weird. Why why aren't you just trying to get out of this? Why why are you wanting to go to Rome? It's like Paul is sending himself to Rome, in a sense, by playing this card. He's, he's He's not doing what normal prisoners would do. He's not playing the game the right way. Well, this is confusing, Festus. Look on in the story. It says, verse 13, a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. So King Agrippa was, uh, maybe you're familiar with some of ancient Jewish history, Uh, he was Herod the Great's great, great, uh, or rather great grandson, um, and he he was uh, sort of ruler of kind of the northern part of Israel, and he he was mainly the the last Herod left in that family dynasty, and he was... um, uh, he, he was there with Bernice, who was his mistress, also his sister. Ah, good, old, good old Roman ways for you there. Uh, but don't worry, before she was his mistress, he, she was married to her uncle. So, yeah, that's, that's how it was. So, anyway, it was a real big scandal, and it's a lot of, you know, good old Roman history there. But, anyway, they're there, and they're coming to pay their respects to Festus, because he's the new governor. And as they arrive, Festus is like, oh, good, Agrippa's here, because first week on the job, I got this weird case. <laughs> I got this, this weird argument between these, the Jewish people that I don't understand, theological debate, and this guy appealed to Caesar, but I have no charges. You know, why, why me? Did I take the wrong job? This is crazy. So, so he goes to Agrippa, because Agrippa's from there, and actually Agrippa was known historically as someone who was well-versed in Jewish tradition. So, so it's kind of like, hey, Agrippa, help me out here. What, what should I do with this one? So verse 14, since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. Again, doing it by the book. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. He probably expected like treason or rioting or insurrection or murder. Instead, verse 19, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss as how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on those, these charges. And when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself 
And he replied, tomorrow you will hear him. Festus is probably like, Agrippa's going to take this weird case of a guy who's not been charged by Rome but appeals to Caesar over some theological dispute among his own people. What in the world? And then so, anyway, just to, to wrap this this story up of the weirdness of Paul's uh, appeal, verse 23, the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officials and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, see, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had, not done, uh, he had done nothing deserving of death But because he had made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. You know, I don't know how to fill out the form. (laughs) i got to do the paperwork. Like, what box do I check? (laughs) What do I say? How can I send him? I don't know what to say about sending a guy to appeal a, a charge to the emperor who has not been charged by Rome but I have nothing to uh, write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I might have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. That, that Greek word for unreasonable is... Uh, it, 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 so, so there's a Greek word, logos, or, or logon, from which we get our word like logic, right? And then if you put an A or an alpha in front of it, it negates the word, so it's logon. It's non, you know, it's like Spock. This is illogical, right? This doesn't make of sense. You could translate that word absurd. You know, this is my first week on the job, and what post did I get assigned to here? I, I have this illogical request. Why is Paul doing this? And there's the question of the day. Why is Paul doing this? Why did Paul appeal to Rome in a sense Sending himself to Rome, why would Paul do that? I suppose there's two answers. One answer is he may have just not wanted to go back to Jerusalem because he didn't trust what they would do there. He he had heard about an ambush two years prior. Now perhaps he suspected another one. Who knows? And yet I don't think that can be the whole answer because the one thing about Paul is the dude's not afraid to die. Death is not scary to Paul. He, he said openly, I'll go to Jerusalem. If I die, I die. I'm not afraid to die. He said it right there. Look, if I've done something wrong, I've done, I don't refuse to die. He's not afraid of death. This is Paul who wrote, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. So, so it's, I don't see Paul as a guy who's trying to avoid death at all costs, although that may be part of it, just to be wise. But I think the real reason Paul has appealed to Rome before he's a formally charged is because Jesus told him to go testify in Rome. Do you remember back in chapter 23 when Paul was first arrested in Jerusalem two years prior? Look back at chapter 23. He had a really bad day in court with the Sanhedrin. It was a total train wreck, really bad, a mess of a trial. And then in chapter 23, verse 11, Paul had a vision. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And so Paul has his orders. And Paul's like, well, I'm going to Rome. 
So, so I think part of what's motivating him, probably the major thing that's motivating him, is he's like, this is how I get to Rome. I appeal to Caesar. Probably had like two years to think about this and figure it out in his prison cell. He plays the card, I'm going to Rome. That's where I want to go because that's where Jesus told him to go so that he can testify there. This is not how you normally play the game. The normal person playing this game would be thinking, how can I get out of jail free? They would be playing Monopoly. You know, what are, how do you get out of the jail? Do you have the card? Do you roll you know, doubles? You know, how do you get out of jail? <laughs> that's not what Paul's thinking. His goal isn't get out of jail so I can go do what I want. His goal is testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I've been told I can testify in Rome. I think the reason Paul has pulled out this trump card is because he's going to go talk to Caesar about Christ. Paul has played this trump card because he is going to talk to the emperor and tell him about the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Paul has decided to be judged by Caesar because Caesar needs to know that Caesar will be judged by God on the last day. Paul is going to the head of Roman power to tell the head of all Roman power about a man who was crushed on a cross by Roman power and yet conquered through his resurrection. Paul is going to Rome because he wants to tell Nero about Jesus. That's the motive. That's how we think as Christians. We look at our lives as opportunities to glorify God and to proclaim the name of Christ. This is how we live our lives. And so when downturns come, when difficult things happen, of course it's difficult. Of course we would love for bad things to end. But, but we're always thinking, but I wonder if there's an opportunity in this mess to glorify God and to tell people about Jesus. And we're just looking for it. You know, we're sniffing for it. We're, we're feeling around for it all the time. Oh, this is best. I wish it would end, but maybe there's something for me to do here for the Lord. And so we, we're playing a different game. We're, we're playing a game within the game, and it's the gospel game. And we know it because even here, as Paul stands before Agrippa, <laughs> so Paul has his chance, and he, he says, great, I'm before Agrippa. I'm going to tell Agrippa the gospel. So he's not just going to Rome to tell the gospel, but every, you know, every space on the game board that he moves toward Rome, he's telling the gospel the whole way. And here before Agrippa, he's like, I'll get, get another chance. So here he goes, chapter 26, verse 1. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand to begin his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Agrippa knows about Christianity and Judaism. He's heard this stuff. Verse 4, the Jews know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and could testify, if they're willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? 
So he starts off by basically saying, look, I'm not anti-Jewish. I'm being, you know, they think that I'm anti-temple, anti-Judaism. If you go back to chapter 22, that was the issue. And Paul's like, I'm not anti-Jewish. You know, Christians have no theological reason to be anti-Semitic. We have nothing against Judaism. In fact, it, it's, it, the situation is not, it's not that Paul's saying Judaism was wrong and we need to dig that Judaism plant out and throw it away and plant Christianity in its place. That's not his view. His view is that Christianity is actually what the Old Testament and the, church fa- and the, the fathers of the Old Testament were waiting for. So it's not that the Judaism plant gets thrown away and Christianity gets replanted. It's that the, the plant of Judaism comes to full flower and the flower is Christ. It's, it's that the tree has grown in the Old Testament and in the New Testament the fruit comes and the fruit is Jesus. So he's like, I, I'm not anti-Judaism. He's like, I'm, I, I am Jewish and Jesus is just what all of us as Jews have been waiting for. And the amazing thing is that Gentiles can have a part in it too. That's the message. The, the thing about Paul that's fascinating, he wasn't anti-Jewish. The thing that's interesting about Paul is that he was anti-Christian, right? He was anti-Christian. Look at the story. He goes on. Um, verse 9, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Paul was a terrorizer of Christians. Paul hurt Christians. Paul helped Christians be murdered. He's bad. <laughs> He's a really bad guy. He was really awful. You know, he, he went in intentionally to where Christians were to find them, imprison them, hurt them, and in some cases to be a part of getting them killed for their faith. This was a bad person. And it's, isn't it so interesting that Paul just brings that out as part of his story? He's like, I'll tell you who I was, right? And I think we as Christians need to not shy away from that part of our story, not that we have to glamorize it, but that's, that's our story as Christians. Like, I was, before Christ, I was lost. And maybe you weren't a, a terrorizer of Christians, but, you know, maybe you were, you know, promiscuous, or maybe you had a drinking problem, or maybe you, uh, you know, were all about you, and you ruined relationships because it was all about you, or maybe you, you know, whatever our history is, or maybe you were arrogant, or maybe, maybe you were very religious, squeaky clean religious person, but you were full of self-righteousness and pride and, and you look down at everybody else. You know, whatever it was, we, we have these things before Christ, and, and we need to just own that as Christians. And here's why, because so often, and this is my experience in conversations, when I'm talking to people who aren't yet Christians and we're talking about religion, you know, I, they'll say something like this, well, you know, all religions are basically the same. They're all about being a good person. You know, and, and you're, as long as you're a good person, as long as you're doing your best, that, that's what it's all about. And, and we need to, like, be able to say as Christians, yeah, except I'm not a good person. <laughs> I wasn't a good person. I still am in the process of being transformed into a good person, and it's a work in progress. You know, I wasn't a good person. 
You know, that's not what Christianity is about. The message of Christianity isn't about, well, just, you know, be nice and we're all nice and isn't it great and let's hug each other and go home. You know, that's not it. It's I wasn't following God. I lived a life of sin, whether it was kind of like blatant, you know, R-rated sin or whether it was like G-rated sin where, where I looked squeaky clean but I was filled up with pride and arrogance and all kinds of stuff in my heart. Whatever the case I was a sinner in need of a Savior. That's the message of the gospel. And so Paul owns that. He says, look, I was bad. But what happened? What happened to Paul? The same thing has happened to every Christian, though not exactly like this. We've all met Jesus. So, look at verse 12. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. And about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. And then Paul goes on to relate the words of Jesus. And here's the cool thing, and I'll read this, but here's what I want you to look for is that as Paul continues to tell his story, he stuffs it with the gospel. So Paul's so clever, right? He's like, I'm just telling you my story, but I'm going to tell you the gospel as I tell you my story. You know, Paul's testimony, his story of conversion, is like a pinata, and that's how all of our stories should be. You know, there's the pinata that you see, and what's on the, you know, kids, you guys, kids love pinatas, right? What's on the inside of the pinata? Candy. I I love candy still. I'm a sucker for candy, you know? When I'm at those pinata things, I want to just go in and, like, move some kids aside and get some candy. <laughs> and the gospel, you know, the, our testimony is stuffed with candy. It's stuffed with the gospel. And so Paul's like, let me just tell you my story. Bang, 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 bang. And suddenly, at this point, the gospel just pours out of the story for everyone to grab if they're willing to get on the floor and grab it. And so Paul tells the story, and I want you to listen for the gospel. I'm going to read this and see if you can hear the gospel message in Paul's story. All right, verse 16. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appointed you, appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from my own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Isn't that great? Do you guys hear the gospel message there? He just stuffed it in. (laughs) Paul. Paul, you know, Paul's like the Trojan horse, and the gospel runs out of him and, and takes over. So l- let's just really quickly trace the gospel here. What is the gospel message? I've said that word gospel probably like 30 times already in this sermon. 
And maybe you're like, what does that mean exactly? So let's just talk about what the gospel message is. And what's, So there's, I think, three points in this little account where he tells parts of the gospel. And, and I, you could see this as he's telling the gospel backwards. He tells the gospel in reverse order. So he has three points he makes about the gospel message, except he's telling them in reverse. So he starts with the end result of what the gospel does if you embrace it. So he starts with the kind of the final result, all right? And it's right there in verse 18. He says, to open eyes, their eyes, and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in my name. If you embrace the, the gospel message, that's what you get. That's, that's the fruit, that's the benefit, that's the result of the gospel. Do you see that? Your eyes are opened. You go from darkness to light. This is the experience of Christians where we just suddenly wake up one day. We're like, wow, I used to look at the world this way, and now I see it's totally different. There's a change in perspective. And for Paul, that was dramatically uh, represented by his own literal blindness from this vision and then his eventual sight. We go from darkness to light. If, If you embrace the gospel, you go from the power of Satan to God. Before you come to Christ, you're under the power of Satan. That sounds really weird, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm like, what? I'm under the power of Satan. Like, I, I don't believe in Satan. You know, I don't even believe there is such a thing as Satan. And he's like, Satan's like, good. That's how I like it. You know? Don't believe in me. Just stay under my power. You know, to be under the power of Satan, like, you don't have to have a pentagram and wear black lipstick and, you know, burn candles in your house. T- to be under the power of Satan... You just have to believe that you are the master of your fate. You just have to believe that truth is what you decide. You just have to live as if it's kind of up to you to determine the point of your own life, to make up the own rules, your own rules to the game. If you think and live that way, you're following <laughs> Satan. You know, the, you know the satanic, you guys heard, there is an actual Satan religion it was formed by this guy named LeVay. There's an actual satanic Bible. And you, you know what the guiding principle of that satanic religion is? It's do what thou wilt. That's it. It's not sacrifice bunnies. It's do what thou wilt. Do what you want. Be constrained by nothing. You are your own God. And thus has been the call of Satan since the Garden of Eden. And that is such a destructive way to live. It's such a ruinous way to live. Maybe you've been living that way, and that's maybe kind of one of the reasons you're here this morning, because you're like, that's not working. I don't know what the right way is. I just know whatever I've been doing hasn't worked. And you've, you've been living in the consequences of that. That's the, you're under the power of Satan and of this world. But you can, through the gospel, go from the power of Satan to the power of God. Through the gospel, you can go... And receive the forgiveness of your sins. Whatever baggage you have, whatever junk in your past that you're ashamed of, and all of the wreckage, that can be forgiven. And then I love this last one. A place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That, that word place could also be translated inheritance. You go from being an outsider to an insider. You go from being homeless to having an eternal home. You go from being rejected to accepted as part of God's family. That's what happens through the gospel. Well, then that raises a logical question. Well, how do I get that? Well, let's go from the, this third point, the last point, which is put first, to the second point, which is how do you get 
the gospel? How do you receive the gospel? How does one lay hold of those benefits? And look a little bit further in the text. Verse 20, Paul says, I preach that they should, here's what you have to do. Here's what you do to receive the gospel. Repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. So repent means to change your mind. It means to say, God was right, I was wrong. And then to turn to God and to say, God, I need your help. And then to have that repentance be real because it results in a changed life. It's, it's, it's not that we're, we're saved by our deeds, but our deeds show that when we said I was wrong, God was right, that we really meant it. And we weren't just people who say like, I'm sorry. You know, sometimes people do that. I'm so sorry, right? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And they say that like over and over, but they never change. There's never actually any movement. And so Paul's saying you've got to have the kind of repentance that results in some kind of movement and direction change of some sort, real repentance. That's how you receive it. You receive the gospel by repenting and believing, not by any ritual, not by going through a church class, not by penance. There's no penance you can do to make yourself right with God. The doctrine of penance is, is just wrong. There is no penance you can do. You know, that's, that's, I think that's more of Satan's voice. You can do it. No, you can't. You need God's grace that you simply come to and say, God, I'm turning to you because I can't do this. I can't save myself. I can't make it right. I need your grace. God, have mercy on me. And so, The way we get the benefits of the gospel is by receiving it by simple repentance and faith, not self-help or self-reformation. Then you think, well, why would God do that? Why would God give his grace to people just because they asked for it? Well, that brings us to the first part of the gospel, what God did. And it's right there in verse 23, that Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Jesus died and rose again. Because he died and rose again, if you will repent and turn to God, you'll receive darkness to light, uh, you know, Satan to God, forgiveness, inheritance, by believing in what Christ did. How is it that God would give those blessings to people like me with my past and people like you with your past? It's because Jesus died and rose again. You can go from darkness to light because Jesus, who is the light of the world, allowed himself to descend into the darkness of the grave. You can go from the power of Satan to the power of God because Jesus, who is God, submitted himself to the power of Satan on the cross. You can be forgiven of your sins because Jesus, who's never sinned, took the guilty verdict and the punishment upon himself on the cross so that we could go free. You can have the inheritance of eternal life Because the son who owns the inheritance has shared it with you and has taken your rejection on the cross and and rose again. It's because of what Christ has done that all of this is possible. And the response is just to say, Lord, I want it. I confess I need it. I can't do it on my own. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me and save me and forgive me. And he will through faith alone, just simple repentance and faith. So there it is. The candy's on the ground. You know, 
And what do you do when the pinata breaks open? Just go for it. You just scramble. You push other kids out of the way. Right? The kingdom of God is forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. You've got to want it. You just, like, don't think it. Don't overthink it. Just grab hold of Christ. Lay hold of it. Scramble. Get there by faith. And yet we don't. We don't. And Agrippa and Festus didn't, at least not at this point. Verse 24, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. (laughs) Festus has got to be like, this is the weirdest first week of anyone's I'm sitting here listening to a guy who said that someone who died and rose again spoke to him from heaven like, (laughs) you know, am I on candid camera? Like, did someone set me up? Is this a big prank? It's insane. And the gospel does seem a little bit crazy. You know, it's funny sometimes, again, when when I talk to people I know, friends, acquaintances about the gospel and about Jesus and about or just about Christianity or church it, it's it's fun sometimes to see people try to to help you be a little more rational and and to try to explain it to you rationally so they'll say things like this if you guys have heard these things they'll be like well you know I'm I'm glad you found you know Christianity I'm I'm glad that's you found community there right or I'm glad you found faith cuz it it probably helps you in difficult times or, or they'll say, um, you know, it's really great that you found your way to give back to the community. That's a good thing. And, you know, people say that. And it's like, yes, the church is my community. Absolutely. I mean, I love you guys. You're my family. I love having one service. I feel like a dad who's like, everybody together on Father's Day. You know, I get all my family, all of my brothers and sisters in Christ together. So you're, you are my community. And, yes, my faith does help me. Absolutely. It helps me and supports me. And yes, I do love giving back through my church. So all that stuff is true. It's not that those things aren't true. But here's the thing. You can get all of those things without Jesus. You don't need Jesus to have community. You can have community on a golf course. I mean, people can be friends. You can have community all over Massachusetts. People are going to be having Father's Day community things. It's going to be great. You don't need Jesus to have community. That's a human thing that we can all have. You, you don't need Jesus to get through tough times. People get through tough times without Christ. They get through. You know, somehow or another, they get through. Uh, and you, you don't necessarily have to have Christ to give back to your community. Lots of people do lots of good things. Atheists go as doctors to Haiti. Buddhists go drill clean water wells in places they don't have clean water. Those are good things. They are not bad. Christians should be about those things too. But, but if you think that that's why we're here as Christians, that that's what keeps us engaged in our faith, you're not getting the nub. All of the things like community and help and service, they're kind of like the byproducts. But the reason we're here, what keeps us together, is because we believe that Jesus died and rose again and is coming again. That's what we believe. And it's out of that that comes all the other stuff. But that's what, that's what our center is. And when people get that, then they go, oh, maybe you are insane. 
<laughs> I, I thought I had made a good explanation for you, but maybe you're insane. And we got to say with Paul, verse 25, I'm not insane. Most excellent Festus, I'm not. You know, what I'm saying to you is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in the quarter. King Grippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Paul is so bold. He doesn't care who you are. He's going to talk to you about Jesus. You know, he's not cowering before the king. He's like, so, so let's talk about the prophets. I know you know the prophets. Come on. So he's like starting to witness to the guy, starting to tell him about the Lord. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul replied, short time or long, I pray that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Even there, Paul's got a sense of humor. Verse 29 should be the heart cry of every true Christian. Our heart cry as Christians should be, we long for everybody to know this Savior. Because if you've really been forgiven, if you've really come to know who Jesus is, then, ah. Like, you want everyone to know that. Not because you think you're right and you have all the answers, but it's just like, you've got to meet Jesus. <laughs> I love you. That's why I want you to know Jesus. You've got to know him. You know, I think you're insane. Well, once you believe and once you see, you'll think it's the greatest thing ever. And so Paul's heart is our heart. And I think verse 29 can be a kind of internal heart barometer. You know, am I a healthy Christian? Well, here's one sort of like vital sign. Is there a concern in me that everyone would know about Jesus? And if that concern is not really in me, then it probably means there's some spiritual unhealth. But when we're healthy, when we're filled up with the Holy Spirit, when we're walking in the Spirit, this is something in our hearts. We want people to know about the Savior, and we pray, and we, we look for those chances. So verse 30, just to wrap this up, the king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. They left the room and while talking with one another, they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or punishment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But he did. Because that's what he wanted to do. Because <laughs> he wants to tell Caesar about Jesus. And you know, my, my heart's desire is that everyone here would be like Paul, that I would be like Paul. My heart's desire is that you would all know Jesus Christ. The gospel candy has been spilled. Will you sit back, too grown up, like Festus and Agrippa? Oh, that's crazy. Oh, you can't talk me into it. Or won't you open your heart, and won't you come, as Jesus said, like a little child with no rights, no, nothing to bring to the table with no standing, but come like a little child with your hands out saying, please, Lord, I want salvation, that humble dependence upon God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that when you poured out your blood on the cross, the gospel was poured out into the world. Thank you, Lord, by embracing you, Jesus, there is hope and there's forgiveness and Lord, we, we thank you that we can be transformed from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, from being outsiders to insiders with you. Oh, Father, I just pray that you would move in every heart here, that everyone here would be like Paul, that we would all be those who embrace the gospel. 
And God, I do pray if there's anyone here who has doubts, skepticism, hostility, if they think this is insane, oh Lord, you're able to show them that you're real. And so God, if you're real, I just pray that you would show that you're real, that they would see it. Just like we all can look up and see the sun in the sky, I pray that they would see the Son of God and they would just know that he really is the risen Savior. And so God, work faith into our unbelieving hearts. Open our blind eyes. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.